This is More Than Therapy Podcast. More Than Therapy. This is More Than Therapy. More Than Therapy Podcast. This is More Than Therapy. More Than Therapy Podcast. This is More Than Therapy Podcast. And welcome to another episode of More Than Therapy. Today I have with me a very special guest, but I know you probably say, I always say that, but this time I mean it. Not that I didn't mean it all the other times, because everyone is special in their own way. (laughs) Today we have Corey Lane Hilton, who is an author and certified authenticity coach. You know, we've had coaches on this show before, but I promise you, you've never had a coach like this. I'm not even going to give you his best story, because I want Corey to say it in his own authentic way. Corey, what's going on today? Well, that was an interesting opening, Philippe. Thanks so much. Thank you so much for having me on the show. I obviously uh, really appreciate it. Uh, It's an honor to be on. Um, I Basically, what it comes down to is I really believe that a lot of the time in the self-help realm or in the speaker realm, there's a lot of stuff that's regurgitated the same way by a lot of people, and there's only so many ways you can skin a cat. And so, for myself, I actually went into this side of my, I guess you could say, writing and the side of my authenticity training, where I actually can um, really throw it, throw it at my audience through my own perspective, my own very unique perspective uh, based on my former career. And so um, not many people did what I did for a living. And so it's something that really um, literally exposed me uh, for most of my adult life um, because I spent 25 years of my life as a male exotic dancer, uh, which spanned not only across Canada, but it also did across the United States and into Europe for a certain amount of time as well. So um, being having seen life through that perspective, um, I have a very unique way of delivering my message because quite frankly, um, I was very inauthentic in a lot of ways in my life, hiding behind the mask of the alter ego that I presented on stage. And so by being that inauthentic, I went through a lot of, I guess you could say, pains and struggles that are very relatable to a lot of guys. But at the same time, they were just expanded a lot more uh, because I really avoided really working on my inner self and was able to get away from with it for quite some time. And by doing that, obviously, I, I hit some really great peaks with my long-lasting career um, where I, I hit the top of the world in a lot of ways in, in the industry I was in, but I also hit rock bottom in, in, in other ways. And it wasn't necessarily due to what I was doing. It was more like what I wasn't doing. And it was just basically not addressing some of the true um, things to do with my authenticity that I was straying from because I didn't recognize or wasn't really aware of my core values. And more importantly, I wasn't aware of the feelings that were attached to those core values. So by blocking all that and just kind of going coasting through life and, and living this very, uh, I guess you could say, unorthodox and irresponsible life, um, those pitfalls really it sometimes almost got me killed a couple times. They've got, it may have me go through divorce. I went through uh, addiction. I went through sex addiction even for a while um, and just really was focused on so many other things instead of really taking the time to really communicate with my ex-wife, for example. So when it came to relationships, yes, I would communicate, but I wouldn't really connect is what I'm trying to say. So, you know, when you're just saying the hi, honey, honey, I'm home and you're not really working on things, um, you're, trying, you're not really growing inside. I, I didn't, I guess you could say I grew in, in one way and she grew in another way and I didn't really allow her to grow because I was so consumed in my own egotism and the stuff that I carried on stage I brought home with me to a certain degree. So all these things are detrimental things uh, that I just did on a way, way larger scale. So 
I, all I'm trying to do is really relate in my own way to the guy that I was when I was 30 years old that was walking into that marriage that was, you know, going in, living this totally irresponsible way of life. But at the same time, um, I, I, do I regret things? No, because I had so much, so much, so many amazing learning experiences. So my mess and my message is truly my value. And I came to find that out in this last couple of years by doing so much deep introspection and by doing that now I, I get I'm really gratified it's such a gratifying feeling to really impact other other people's lives and kind of show them and instruct them on really got gently guide them I guess you could say when they're willing to address their core values and the feelings that represent them so everybody's different we're all snowflakes in that department and so it's, it's just being aware is what it comes down to but I just have a different take on it and I'm going into that same industry by not regurgitating the same stuff I'm trying to go in with a type of way where people can cross-reference my story with their story. So I'm literally saying, here's my story. It's 100,000 words. It's 316 pages in this book. I'm going to show you mine. Boom. Wide open. There's no hiding here. There's no, everything's out. And so I'm being completely vulnerable, telling you everything. Now, by doing that, my hope is that my students can actually see that and go, well, you know what? That guy did that. He was in that position. Maybe, you know, maybe... I'm not that crazy. Maybe I'm not in the bed. I'm not that bad of a person or whatever they got in their own head. Maybe I could help them to understand that even that guy was going through that same stuff. Right. And so if they can reflect on that and kind of put that down on paper, it helps them heal their relationships. And for me, I found that when I connected those dots, Philippe, when I truly connected those dots, that was actually something that allowed me to actually grow and be so much better as a person. You're never going to be able to really truly connect with all your values because that's perfection. It's just not possible. But at least being aware of it, you can understand when you're straying from one of those. Like, for example, if I'm not creative and I'm not feeling excited, excitement's my, my link to creativity. So if I'm not feeling excited, I have to understand why I'm not feeling excited. And maybe I need to start getting out and doing things that are more creative to boost that part of my, my authenticity back where it needs to be. So that's just kind of what I teach other people to do in a nutshell, really. So, yeah. Indeed, indeed. I'd like to take <laughs> it back. I'd like to rewind the clock a little bit if you don't mind. <laughs> sure. How did your childhood influence your current trajectory in your life? Did it have any influence or did it impact, you know, some of the rocky parts or some of the highlights? I mean, how did your childhood? And the reason yeah. I ask this is because many times the childhood is the catalyst for our trajectory in life, for where we are in life, whether it's road A, road B, or road C, or yeah. whether it's us being stuck emotionally where we're at. Yeah, yeah so um, it's right literally the first chapter of my book, actually, because when it comes down to that, like, I didn't even realize in some of the, you're a kid, you don't realize you're being inauthentic, like, you don't even know what the meaning of it is, really, when you're five years old. So for myself, right, like, I guess all I can say is, is that I was, I had a bit of a, a struggle with the the, um, the core value of truth when I was that, that young. And so my perspective was actually skewed uh, in comparison to my truth. So I wrote this little um, section in that first chapter where as a little kid, uh, my aunt and uncle, who I had a great family, yeah, but my aunt and uncle, they took me to the fair and they put me on a Ferris wheel. And so I get on this Ferris wheel and I get stuck at the top by myself. I'm crying my eyes out. And the, the seats swaying back and forth and I'm just losing my mind like I'm just traumatized and that's a small t trauma compared to a lot of other trauma people go through obviously but so anyways and I, I finally you know get back down from the ferris wheel and, and I whatever ended up happening but I carried this fear of heights due to this 
and I carried it for most for quite some time. But then years and years went by, and I actually spoke to my aunt, and I said, Aunt Carol, like, why would you ever put a kid on a Ferris wheel at that age by himself? Like, that was so mean. And she said to me, she, was like, she started laughing. I was so confused. She said, well, it wasn't a Ferris wheel at the fair, Corey. It was just one that was at the mall. I stuck a quarter in the thing. It only was about seven feet high. You were just sitting there screaming your lungs out, freaking out over nothing. And so that skewed perspective of my actual truth caused me to have this fear of heights. So restricted me into my adulthood due to that. So I kind of find that when you're when you're an adult, for example, and you go back to your elementary school, you can walk in your elementary school and you can see all the desks are smaller. You can see that the, the height of the ceiling is smaller. Even the walls are closer in. So it, it, the, the difference when you're an adult, you're looking at it in that view. But if you're actually a kid, you're on the, kind of on the other side of it. So like everything that you're looking at or you're thinking about is, 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 is actually bigger than it actually is. So I actually did, literally did that and expanded my truth like that. So that's an example of one of my childhood fears that came into play. But also I had a major disconnection with emotion. And that was from a very early age. And it was, uh, quite frankly, I'm not playing the blame game and saying that it's anybody's fault. It's my, it's my own responsibility to take control of these things. But my family, there was not a lot of love use in my family. There wasn't a lot of hugs and kisses. It was more so they just, you know, they showed their love in a different way. A lot of the time it was monetary or whatever it was. So, But my grandfather who raised me, my grandparents who raised me, they were depression era people so they actually had this this ingrained mentality of lack and unworthiness and they struggled with it naturally they didn't have the tools that a lot of us have in this generation so with the low education they only knew what they knew and they just passed that along to me and some of it was really good morality integrity but there was other things that they didn't know that they just they literally just passed along and being that i was emotionally disconnected and not understanding that i would try to get a rise out of people just at that age so I'd be you know my parents would have friends over and they'd be playing cards in the kitchen or something and I'd be in my bedroom and there was a, a gap between the, the bedroom and the bathroom where you could see somebody walk by from the kitchen so I'd be in the bedroom and I'd strip down naked and I'd run back and forth between the bathroom and the bedroom where my parents would have company over just to get people to laugh and get a rise out of them just to be able to get the emotion and so literally from the age of five years old I was trying to extract emotion out of people and I think Really, there's an element of that that made me decide to go into the career that I did at the end. And, and yes, I enjoyed the, the, you know, dancing for women. Yes, I enjoyed the money side of it, of course. But at the same time, what I really enjoyed was getting the emotional reaction out of my crowd. If I could get somebody to cry or laugh or just scream their lungs out, you know, my job was done right. And I got the goosebumps being able to do that. I fed off that. Like, that was what, that creativity brought that out of me. That's where my excitement came out why I lasted so long in the industry. I was in there for 25 years from 17 till 43 years old, so long career. I hope that kind of answered your question. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> definitely did. Thank you for being expansive in that approach. How old? You said 17. So yeah, man. what made you say, you know what? I think I can do this. Besides probably having, you know, a very stout athletic build, <laughs> What, how'd you get introduced into that particular career trajectory? And no judgment, because honestly, no, no, if I could no. do it, I would do it. <laughs> hey, you're hired, you're hired, man. I'll only charge you 15% as your agent. I'll get you, I'll get you. There you go. Today. <laughs> no, you know, it was, it was interesting for me because I, when I got into this industry, it was, it was just for, it was very unique. Um, of course, the drinking age here in Canada is 19 compared to 21 down south. So when I was, really kind of in my teenage years I was going to high school I was getting bullied quite a bit and I was just kind of 
one of these kids that was mediocre in my own mind, I guess, and I was really just trying to fit in, just like a lot of people are when they're that age, right? So, and then I just happened to have a friend of mine that worked at this, this club, and it was called Casablanca's here in British Columbia. It was at the time, back in 1987, it was like one of the top ladies' nights in British Columbia. It was like a lineup all the way up the street just to get in the place, right? It was just, just a really amazing club at that time. And so he invited me down to the club, and he said, yeah, come on down and throw a university shirt on, I'll let you through the door, and I'll get you in. I'd never even been in a nightclub before like that, so I was all nervous and threw on a university shirt, and I came down there, and I showed up, of course, at 7 o'clock when the, when the door was just opening. There wasn't a soul in the club, and, and uh, I got introduced to the manager. He said, oh, he said, you know, you're going to school? And I said, oh, yeah. That wasn't mine. I was just going to high school. <laughs> and he said, he said, uh, well, would, are you... Are you looking to make extra income? I said, yeah, I'm a starving student. He said, okay, take your shirt off. And so I took my shirt off. Next thing you know, he's like, you're hired. I got hired, like, for what? He was like, oh, you got to be here on Tuesdays and Thursdays, and you work for two and a half hours, and you just walk around with your shirt off. And, and Thursdays are cuffs and collars night. Tuesdays are basically Hawaiian ladies night with uh, funny-looking shorts and, and Hawaiian lays around your neck, and you just serve drinks to girls. And um, you take 15% of everything that they make off the bar or everything you sell off the bar and then you keep all your tips. And at the end of the show or at the end of the night, you uh, hand out a, you do a little choreographed dance routine with the rest of the waiters and you hand out a, a bottle of champagne to the loudest, loudest uh, table in the house. And that's your job, man. You're finished. Like, you know, and so I was making really good money when I was in high school. In fact, money that I didn't even deserve to be making. Uh, but that being in that environment actually like of course there was male dancers that were coming through every week or every ladies night and it was usually four at night that came through and i got to know these people and i uh, got to know some of the best in the industry and one of the best people one of the top dancers in fact it was like the elvis of stripping so to speak in canada became my mentor and just it, it just kind of developed from there man we created a name we created a show and you know it just kind of went from there and I, I started getting more and more popularity and it just expanded and I went outside of British Columbia and started going across Canada and eventually started doing what they, they had contests back then so um, and we stripped nude in Canada completely naked um, so I won Mr. Nude Canada in 1997 Mr. Nude Western Canada or sorry Mr. Nude Western Canada 1997 second in Mr. Nude Canada and uh, from there um I really just ended up expanding my horizons because I kind of hit the peak um, of where I wanted to go with the industry here. And I, a few years before, had run into this agent that came into that exact same club. Uh, he ran the, the number one dance review in all of North America at the time. And he told me, if you ever want a job, man, he goes, I'd be more than happy to have you on my team. And he gave me his card, but I never used it for years. So when I won that contest, I just turned around and I called him up out of the blue and he said, yeah, surprisingly enough, my guys are coming to Canada in a few weeks, and uh, you can learn the choreography and get those guys to the shows on time. You have a position. So I'm one of these people that literally just packed up everything that I had, like sold everything that I, my material objects that I couldn't carry with me, and I basically just left my family, my friends, everything that I knew, jumped into a tour van and went straight across uh, the U.S. for three days and ended up in Panama City Beach, Florida, and spent a decade down there in a whole new world of mayhem. So that's really in bullet point form how I got into the industry. Um, but I could be here for hours telling you stripper stories. So it's just one of those things where I don't want to take up all your time on that. Subject. Indeed, indeed. I have a, another podcast for that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, 
your career, you know what I'm saying? A long, yeah. long lasting career before you transition to this phase of your career. Yeah. But was there any barriers, any hiccups that messed up your career? I know earlier you indicated that your own inauthenticity was an impact, but also addiction. Can you tell us more about this and how it impacted you? How long it kept you a prisoner before you broke out and was able to overcome it? That's a that's a deep one. Um, I would say that's, that's, a, that's a lot to unpack. Um, because that's okay, but it's just so much there. Um, because as I just mentioned, I left my world that I had in Canada. So I knew, you know, I had my family, I had my friends, I had the people that I knew here. And in my time that I lived here, I was actually, uh, believe it or not, I didn't, the worst, the worst thing that I did in my life at that time, or worse per se, was have a, you know, few beers at a party or whatever. I didn't even smoke weed. Like, <laughs> I did nothing. Like, I was clean as a whistle. The only thing that I did at that time as a former bodybuilder back in 1992 was I took steroids for a certain amount of time to get my body built up, and I was trying to go pro at bodybuilding at time. So that had a purpose. But what I'm getting to is, is that, that that body got me where I needed to go in my industry. But when I left Canada, I ended up going, as I said, to Florida into this new world, a world that I had no idea what I was stepping into. So we pulled up and, you know, there's the billboard up there with our life-size pictures up up there. Like, it was just almost overwhelming. And I walk in and getting introduced to the people of status, like all the people that were to do with MTV, the, the, the guys that own the club. Like, just, I was in the VIP section right away. Like, I literally just walked into this crazy life. And so when I did that, I had no idea... Where I'm, what was going to happen in this new world after two or three days of being there when I walked in and as I mentioned being emotionally disconnected I was hungry, very hungry for emotional connection so I was looking for it in all the wrong ways at that time so um, I, I got in there and you know got to know a few of the dancers and stuff and then all of a sudden one of the guys came up to me he's like, he was from Alabama with this thick accent he's like hey Corey you know, he just turns around and gets, says take this little pill here you know, it'll, it'll rock your world. And I thought, oh, yeah, what's my little pill going to do? And so I took this friggin' ecstasy pill. And all of a sudden, like, this whole new world of emotion popped into my head. And it was like, and of course, like, it's hard to describe if somebody hasn't done MDMA, but and I'm not here to promote it. But at the same time, it did open up a door inside my mind that I never opened before. And it was a new sensation for me. It was almost like a person that had, never, had eaten food all their life, but they'd never tasted it. And all of a sudden, I tasted it, and it tasted really good. So... I got really absorbed into that world, like, and so I was living behind this alter ego mask on stage, which I represented very well, and I was really good at what I did, but then when I came off stage, like, I was also in this party zone where I was being paid to party, I was being paid to be the life of the party, have a good time, and I really was having a great time, I'm not here to cry a river about that at all. But I will say that it had its um, it had its detriments as well because it wasn't I was although I was communicating with people and I was connecting emotionally I, I still wasn't really like getting into my own stuff I was really kind of just trying to just have a good time partying with people but I wasn't really addressing my own interior interior lack like the things that I was really dealing with I was still, I still wasn't addressing I just kind of blocked it out and just kept the party going and so with that. Of course, I had some amazing stories, some amazing memories, but it, that door that I opened going there, it didn't take me to the right place, right? Like, I went up to the top of the world and hit rock bottom, and it's all described in my book, but it's just, it all, honestly, just, I came to discover that when I connected all these dots after doing this crazy business, and after I was out of it for so long, 
I actually connected those dots and found that every single thing that I struggled with, whether it was the addictions or whatever it was, it all came down to a degradation of my core values. One of them were multiple core values that caused me to go through all this. So it's just learning when you're, it's wisdom, right? Like at this age, and I never felt better about the person I look in the mirror at now. Whereas I might not have the exterior that I used to have, so to say. But I, as far as being a more well-rounded person and actually like, being more authentic and trying to understand what life's like through other people's lens and not being so self-absorbed and just seeing things through my lens. And I think that that's something that unfortunately in the world we're living in today, it's kind of a black and white world where people always want to be right. They don't really want to understand somebody else even if they disagree with them. Like, I can disagree with somebody now and be like, okay, well, you know, I may not agree with you, but I really do I want to understand why you feel that way so that I can get what where you're at. Maybe it's a religious ideology. Maybe it's a you know, political ideology, but, and I may completely disagree, but if I can understand it, then I can go, okay, now I get you. Like, let's move on to the next subject that we do agree on and we can be in that gray area and still be cool. Right. But I just kind of, I guess it's just, that's, that's kind of my mission now in a lot of ways is to help people find the gray area a little bit. So in my own way, in my own little bubble, I can kind of help people get along more instead of being so tribal because I don't know, like it just, it, it really felt like that, especially in this last couple of years, just based on what's kind of going on. But I, I felt that building for a long time. And I felt it different because here I was the, you know, the polite, happy Canadian that's always saying sorry for everything, going down into the US and, and going into this completely different world. So I saw it in a way that was just a, it was just through a different, it was, it was just different for me. I, I saw the, the blatant racism at times. I saw the, the things that were very foreign to me not exactly as I guess you could say wide open and apparent right in my face I saw when I went to the southern US right so it was, it, I didn't agree with a lot of it but I just tried to kind of figure out why they felt the way that they did and that's something that now that I'm doing that I just just like I said my relationships are better and I lost a lot of people in my life just that were inauthentic as well and I'm glad that that door closed because they were just really in a lot of ways taking their own self-doubt and their own limiting beliefs and passing it along to me so you know when you're about, around those type of people it does kind of rub off on you and so that change of environment right like and, and brought in new people into my life that were authentic that i'm learning from and growing from and i walk out of a discussion with one of my flat tire five people that i have in my life so to speak now and i'm like damn you know i want to go and conquer the world not wanting to go into paralysis mode and sit and watch TV for the rest of the day because I'm so depressed about myself because those people that you are rubbing they do rub off on you like that those people that are right around you like they are kind of molding that clay just like you're trying to mold that clay so for for myself like we've all heard the, the analogy of you know the plants not growing in the shade moving in the sun it's kind of true you know and so I just had just a different viewpoint due to what I did for so many years so now my purpose is so much stronger like I I really have a deep purpose because I just don't want to see a lot of guys struggle with the things that I did because I went on an eight-year Forrest Gump walk trying to figure my own shit out and yes I did go through some therapy but I turned out to be my own best therapist just by really plugging in and understanding a lot of other people out there in this world because we have this ability right now like your audience might not they, they might be sitting here going yeah i take that from Corey. like i get that i understand what this guy's saying i don't resonate with this other stuff he's talking about at all that's okay 
I, if I'm making an impact and just helping out one person by a couple of words I say, and you don't believe in anything else, that's okay. I'm totally good with it. But that's what I did. Is I plugged into the Trent Shelton's of the world. I tried, plugged into the, you know, the, the even the Tony Robbins or the, the Lewis Howes or all the big hitters. And every day just absorbed as much as I could and took what I could out of it and threw away the rest and just put my own accent on it. It's, I didn't want to regurgitate what they were doing. I just wanted to be able to say, hey, man, this is the way I saw it. If we relate, we relate. If we don't, that's okay. Um, but I'm, I'm going to entertain them at the same time through that book, right? And so people want to hear the dirt. They want to hear the funny stuff or the crazy stuff, of course. Like, naturally, that's a bit of the hook to it. And that's what take it off really means is take it off is, yeah, like the hook is taking my clothes off, obviously. Not everybody's done that for a living. But to me, it's taking off the layers. It's taking off the layers of life that you get stacked on from you from the day you were hatched, basically, you're getting the layers stacked on. So I've just been kind of deprogramming and pulling the layers back off and just kind of exposing my, per se, naked truth. And, I, and it all revolves around my branding. But I mean, truthfully, I, I literally did this in my book where I said, here's the chapter title, here's the actual core value, and here's the struggle that I went through with it. And it's, it's right in your face. And at the end of the chapter, I'm coming at you from my undrug gaze straight up accountable like authentic reality saying yes i really screwed up right here <laughs> i really really messed up right here or you know and i'm just saying it and being very very open to my own misgivings as somebody that tried to be a perfectionist for so long in his life that it's just really going down a road of, you, you can never win that one because nobody's perfect and so i was always kind of trying to i was always putting myself on this pedestal in, the, in a way like where I, I was always negative self-talk. If I didn't get something done right, I was always talking myself down. And in my relationships, I was always looking up at somebody from, from looking up at somebody on their pedestal or looking down at them from mine. And it was always a power struggle. And so now where I'm at now is I'm looking people straight in the eye. And it feels really, really good and really liberating to be able to do. So if I can help other people out again to be able to, to do that, it really heals a lot by connecting those dots and healed a lot of wounds that I never thought would happen, ever. So, yeah, it's cool. I know I kind of went off on a tangent. No, no, that's right what you need to do. Honestly, everything, everything is purposeful. Everything has its purpose. You mentioned earlier something about the five people closest to you. Some people don't understand the analogy, but what it is is like your, your life is impacted by the five people closest to you. Yeah. Who do you believe has been the most influential person, other than yourself, that got you on this path today? That's a really interesting one because it's you're going to get a bit of an unexpected answer. Um, I've had a couple of people that really, really impacted my life that were outside of the industry that were like um, that I looked at, and I, they, in their own way, I put them on their own pedestal of not really, I guess you could say. I, I I looked at them as my heroes, and one was my my grandfather that raised me. And until I actually um, until he passed away, I, I I didn't want to release my book. I'd already written it, but I didn't want to release it. I didn't want him to understand or hear some of the stories in there. I didn't want him to have a I guess you could say a jaded perspective of the kid that he raised. Right, like just just things in there as a generational thing that he would never really understood. So, and same with my grandmother who passed away too. So, yeah, that was big. But I think that, that another person that really influenced me was actually a guy that was a Vietnam vet um, in Florida. And I would, no lie, believe I would leave thousands of people at the club. It would be a Friday night, 
be about 10 o'clock. We finished ladies' night or 11 o'clock. And uh, you'd think, oh, yeah, you know, you'd want to stay there. And, you know, people are paying 35 bucks a head just to get inside this club. So it was like, you know, obviously people would think, oh, yeah, you'd want to stay there. But no, I would leave because I wanted to actually go and really connect with somebody that I knew was my friend. And it wasn't just an acquaintance. It wasn't one of the 5,000 people that didn't really know me. It was one of the five people that really knew me. So I would leave sometimes and just go back to his place and we'd be just sitting there shooting the shit. And at that time, ripping doobies and just talking and just getting to know each other and, and more, you know. And he had turned out to be one of my best friends. And, and he went, he was, he was a guy that, he, he was a Purple Heart recipient in Vietnam. He had his, his struggles with alcoholism. He ended up having a quadruple bypass in 1986 and he lived for far longer technologically just because of what he had built into him. As a, he almost said he was kind of part robot from all the stuff that he had inside of him. But but he was just one of the most authentically just real people. And he wouldn't, he just, he, as, as, as cynical as the guy could be sometimes, I just had this mad connection with him. He was like an older brother to me. It was one of the hardest losses I ever had in my life when, when he passed away because I felt like I lost, like, it was like he used to raise up his hand, and that's why I call it the flat tire vibe, is because he raised up his hand, and he'd be like, yeah, man, if you get you get five, like, five real ones in your entire life, you're doing better than most people. Like, if you really do real, like, I'm talking, they, they're not looking at you for your money, they're not looking at you for your status, you could have everything off, you could be stripped naked, not a damn thing, and they'd still be there for you, and vice versa, that's when you know you got something real, and so... When he passed away, like I, it's almost like I felt like I lost one of those fingers. And it's like, you know, when an amputee loses something, they can kind of still feel it there. I still feel it there. Like I, I do, even when I when I wrote the book, like I I, I was feeling it as I was writing. You know, so that's where, yeah, it, it's kind of an unexpected answer because you might hear, you might think, oh yeah, you know, like I, and I do respect. Like I look up to certain people and certain realms like football people like you know or people that are in acting or whatever music i look up to them and i go man that's an amazing talent but when i'm when i'm talking what i'm talking about is more who's really truly affected me in my bubble who impacted my life and, and made me think the way that i do now or, or made me understand the world the way that i do now and i'm still just learning just like anybody else right but at the same time if those two people weren't in my life my life would definitely a lot Thank you for sharing that. Thank you. Thank you. That was very beautiful. And he was a good man. Both my, him, my dad. Thank him for his service and thank you for honoring his um, contribution to your life. Yeah, he was my, he was my I, I'm not even going to lie to you, Philippe, but my last conversation I had with him, he, he knew he wasn't going to probably make it out of the surgery, you know. It was, it was, it was tough. And I was, you know, I'm, I'm the type of guy now that I realize that man enough isn't about holding you're bottling up your emotions, right? Like that's kind of like we get that thrown into our faces, guys. A lot of the time, where you can't cry, you can't show your emotions. You got to be the hunter gatherer. You got to be strong, and all that shit that they throw at you. And when I was talking to him on that last call, like you know, it almost brings me to tears saying it. But you know, he lost part of it. He lost his leg at that time. He had to have his leg amputated. He was going in for another heart surgery, and he had like three stints in him. And he knew it was over. Like he knew there was a good chance. And and I was on the phone with him, and you know, I was like, "Man, you you have no idea, Ron, how much of a hero you you are to me." And he just started kind of laughing. He's like, "I'm no hero," and I was like, "No, you don't understand. Like, you're normalizing yourself, and maybe other people have normalized you, but I don't normalize you. You are a hero to me, you know." And 
that's the way I think about life now myself is, is that like the people that know me, my family, my friends, the people that know me for 20 years, 30 years, as the kid that had a booger in his nose at five years old or whatever, you know, they all normalize me. But when I'm talking to you or I'm talking to somebody that's new in my life that I've never spoken to and I say, this is what I'm doing, they're just like, oh my God, that is like incredible. Like, keep doing what you're doing. Don't ever stray from your goal. Get it, you know? And they're like all about it because they're not normalizing. So yeah, it was just something that, that I, I, I never, I, as much as he wanted to normalize himself in that moment and say, no, nah, you know, bring it down a notch, no, nah, I'll, I'll never normalize him. Never. Indeed, indeed. <laughs> well, we've talked all around it. So let's talk about it. <laughs> We're going to look at, let's talk about your, your book. Because, of course, that's what you want to talk about. Because your book <laughs> is absolutely amazing. It's it's my life, literally my life story, and it's such, it's so bloody open. And I I guess all I can say is that so many people ask, say to me, God, Corey, you told me this insane story. Like, when are you writing the book? Mm-hmm. And you know, it took me years and years to get there. And I could have wrote it at 43 years old when I got out of the industry, but the stories just weren't enough, man. Like I, the stories were great. I could have, I could have put it out then, but I needed to actually have something that that I could help other guys or just help other people out to to not go through that same stuff. And so, you know, building a book that's a biography and it's crossed with personal development isn't really all that easy. So, I had to timeline a lot of things, to figure out where I was at this time or what I was going, who I was with or whatever, right? And then kind of figure out like from there where where I was being in my own way inauthentic and where I was being authentic and addressing those things because again that's my way right like, that's just my way of helping people and it's just it helped me out so much the biggest word that I can say behind all of it is liberating by living my authentic self it's been extremely liberating but at the same time you have to be bloody well willing to do it and it's not an easy thing to do not everybody's even cut out to do it some people want to sell themselves as something that they're not you know we do that on social media we got it in our jobs or whatever it might be. And if that's the way you want to live life, fill your boots. But to me, when I'm talking to someone, I want I want them to know who they're actually speaking with. And I'm going to be the same guy that I was, you know, yesterday. You're going to get the same guy the next day. Um, I might have a little bit of a different thought process, but I want to stay aligned with that, right? So, and I feel that that's really, really important, not only for myself, but it's important for my professional and personal relationships because if I can't understand where they stand with their feelings connected to their values, then it's just a crapshoot. You're just kind of going through. It's like a, a slot machine of life and hoping for the best. And I'd rather kind of at least try to work on that and understand the people that, I'm in, that are in my bubble. So that's kind of what the book's all about, really. Well, let, me read, uh, let me read the back of the book. I think it's the back. Take it off. Revelations of a Male Exotic Dancer is a unique and colorful biography of Corby Lane Hilton's 25-year journey in the male exotic dance industry, which brought him to the top of his industry in Canada and merges into his transition to a new world of dancing in the U.S. He reveals unknown truths about what it took to be an entertainer in Canada and the reality under the spotlight in the southern U.S., at one of the largest nightclubs in North America without political correctness or ideology. This is his raw truth, raw truth, based on his 10 core values and how he overcame his self-worth, 
struggled through introspection and authenticity, which liberated him by taking off the layers long after he chose to put his clothes back on. And that is Take It Off by Corey Lane Hilton, available at takeitoff.ca for $34.95 Canadian dollars, which is approximately $43.95 in America. Yeah, and and that's like I say. Thank you for writing that out because it's it's when I talk about the differences between Canada and the U.S. when it comes to the unknown differences. I mean, I've explained this on other podcasts, and I have to tell the audience to sit down before I tell them because you're going to probably cringe a little bit because there's some things that most people have no idea about when it comes to what it's like behind that velvet rope. If you actually think that it's all glory days and these guys are out there doing their thing and they're making all the money and they get all the women and it's just all awesome. You know, that's not right. That's Magic Mike. That's a bunch of BS. My my story, actually, if you wanted to combine my story in three, three movie titles, just as a joke for your audience, my story is a combination of Joe Dirt, Forrest Gump, and Magic Mike. Throw all of them together and you pretty much got me if you want to joke around about it. Like, that is the truth. And so when I talk about dancing here in Canada... You know, as I mentioned before, we went we went full nude. Now, a lot of people don't understand what we had to do to go full nude here. And as I said, your audience might want to sit down and cringe a little bit here. But when <laughs> when I would go to these shows, no matter <laughs> wait, where wait, was, wait a second, because certain audience members will want to hear this. But let me put a disclaimer up first. Yeah, yeah, so, <laughs> yeah. Do that. This please. next segment is going to be considered controversial and may be sensitive <laughs> to some listeners' ears. This would be the time to check out, but check back in five minutes. That is so good. As you were saying, Corey? <laughs> yeah, put the, put the earplugs in the children's ears right now. So anyway, yeah. No, here's what it, what it comes down to. Of course, going nude, we have to give the illusion of being this massively hung male dancer. So how do you do that? Well, the only way that we were, and we were required to do this through our agents and stuff. And this is something that you probably don't know, but we would actually have to go back before we actually put on our costume, go back into the change room, do whatever it took to get an erection, and literally jerk off and get an erection and tie an elastic around the base of your dick and hold the blood in there to be able to give the illusion of being massive. And so we actually had to do that. And, and I actually did that at two different shows where I actually had... I was tied off one time so long that I lost all feeling down there. I actually was tied off for almost an hour and a quarter, and it was because of a show that I was in. It was a contest that I was doing, and a guy that had showed up before me, he jumped on stage, and, and I'd already tied off, so I, I made the choice of standing there and waiting for him to finish the show, and I, I ended up staying there and, and went and did a killer show and won the contest, and all of a sudden I was out there for so long that I ended up coming back, and I snipped that elastic off, and I couldn't feel anything for like two days. It was like numb down there. The irony of signing girls' posters and stuff, and they're sitting there saying, I want to take you home. And I'm thinking to myself, the parts ain't going to work right now. Like, I'm telling you, it just isn't going to work. So that's what I'm saying is, is that even having experiences like that, like, people don't know that that's what male dancers had to actually do. So, you know, and there was times when, God, I'd be in Winnipeg, Canada, and I did six shows in a night before. So you can imagine the stress. The, 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 I guess you could say like not only just stress but the nervousness of just trying to make sure that you can even get it up in time to actually do that and sometimes we would even be in a position where you just have a curtain 
in a circle on the actual stage and somebody else is actually dancing right next to you and you're sitting there in a chair trying to get this to happen and so like that's what i'm saying like, it's just crazy i'd have beads of sweat running down my face you know like, freaking out hoping that i could make this happen before going out and trying to entertain ladies and dance for 20 minutes you know so i'm just saying like i didn't have to do any of that stuff in the u.s like when i got to the u.s it was all like you know just doing review shows you run around in g-string and do your thing but for a solid almost decade here in canada that's what i had to do right so and again it's just you know even when i think about my first show that i ever did i, I wrapped that elastic one too many times and i did it four times instead of three and again i couldn't even feel anything down there so this is such a horrible thing to actually do the human body in the first place like it's just disturbing that we were even asked to have to do something like that, but that's what we were getting paid for. So back in that foregone industry of political incorrectness, I'm just saying, it wasn't just what we were doing on the stage, it was what we had to do to get out of the stage too that was like bending our morality, right? So yeah, you know, and, and it wasn't, it was just a, there was times where I had to really kind of block out a lot of things and go, okay, like you're doing this because it's a show you have to be separate this is your alter ego this isn't you man this is your alter ego and and that those layers in that way stack up as well so like as i continued on through my career i was having relationship issues a lot of the time because i brought my alter ego off stage and, and didn't even realize i was doing it if you want to know the truth there was times that i didn't even know that i was carrying that and and so again it's these subconscious blocks sometimes that we don't even know that we're carrying and we're, we're, we're passing it off on our partners, right? So, and I played the blame game with so many people without using my own thumb. I used the finger all the time and pointed everybody else for all my problems. So, yeah, it's just a, it's just a, like I said, when you're talking the difference between Canada and the U.S., it was, it was really an interesting dynamic. And it was, it was also like, I think sometimes people think about stereotypically what a male dancer is supposed to be and they give their assumptions on that. And you can paint that picture if you so choose, but I was a lot different. Like I carried myself with a lot of class on and off stage. I treated people with respect. I dressed right. Like I tried my best to actually represent well. And by doing that, I was able to sustain a longer career. I was able to make more money. And at the same time, though, I was able to actually like hit a level of the, of the career that I was actually, I was in a weird way I was proud of. And, but when somebody would say, oh, okay, that's a stereotypical dancer. Well, I could say that, that same thing about the women in the audience. Like I could assume that every woman in the audience just wants to come there to get laid, but that's not the case. Like most women come out to a ladies night just to come out and scream and yell with their friends and have a good time. You know, even about that, but maybe there are a few that are right. Well, that's kind of the same thing with the male dancers. Like, for myself, I sustained an eight-year marriage without cheating on my wife, right? I was completely completely monogamous through that entire time. So maybe I'm not, I wasn't a stereotypical dancer, you know, in my own way, right? Like, I had my fun, but when I was in a relationship, I was in a relationship, and I was straight from it. So, you know, that was just me. This was my story. Right? But I stuck to that core value of integrity by doing that. And again, like, I had butterfly effect moments in my life, quite frankly, that I could have went one way or the other way, but I stuck by my integrity and it brought me where I went and I st I'll never know what the other road would have been. I could look back and go, oh, I wish to God I was maybe with this person or I wish I had changed this. And when people say, oh, I don't have regrets, I call bullshit. I think everybody has their own set of regrets. I think everybody has their own set of mental health issues too. Everybody. We all do. So, yeah, you know, that's what I'm kind of trying to just convey in this whole process about Take It Off is 
is that I'm not looking down from my pedestal at anybody. All I'm trying to do is just get them to understand that, hey man, I struggled with the same things. Just because you're a garbage truck driver doesn't mean that you can't relate to the struggles that I was going through, even though I was the guy up there on stage. And I think that goes across the board, believe, you know, you look at a lot of people that are in the entertainment industry that unfortunately die at a young age, right? Like they commit suicide or whatever, right? Because they're not really being understood. Like they don't really, they got a lot of acquaintances that don't really know them. And then they're just starving and hungry for that, that trust and that truth. And that's where that thing, I think that, you know, a lot of people think, oh yeah, you got it all because you're in that spotlight. But status isn't, doesn't define worth. It just doesn't, you know, or value, right? So for me as a guy that struggled with lack all my life, like my mission now for myself personally is just to get my value up enough that I'll never have to worry about money ever again in my life. If it could all be taken away, I can make it all back again because I, I provide that much value to the world. And that's a selfless thing. It's not just about me wanting to make all the money. It's just being that type of person that people can come to and, and listen and relate to and that are willing to learn, right? Just like me, right? Like I can learn off of you. I can, you know, I can learn off the person that just came into my, that to be a student, they can teach me something right off the bat. I'm always open to that now, whereas it used to be so closed-minded and just seeing life in my lens. And I just had to understand that, you know, not everybody thinks like me, <laughs> which is a weird dynamic because you should already know that, but we kind of just assume that everybody thinks like us. It's not really the case. One of this book, Take It Off, you're being your authentic self and you're promoting people to be their authentic self in your coaching practice. Can you tell us about your authenticity authenticity coaching practice? Yeah. Um, well, again, it's multi-level. Uh, it basically is split into 12 one-and-a-half-hour sessions when I go one-on-one. -on -one. Um, it's based off of a core, the, the, the core, I guess you could say, the, the umbrella of the whole thing is based off of authenticity, but it's also, it's really just kind of like a step-by-step. -step. So, for example, in my first first worksheet or my first training is all about the alignment between your authentic self and emotional intelligence and people to really to be able to understand that they they work hand in hand so for example like say for example when you get tricked and you're in a you're in a zone where you're like oh you know you get that feeling in your gut or your skin starts getting flushed because of something somebody said or maybe it's somebody cut you off on the road or something road raging or whatever it might be that brings up that arc of intensity inside you. It's, it's about not bottling up those emotions, which is something that my father did for most of his adult life, is bottled up, bottled up, bottled up emotions. And then as soon as when it continued to peak and it got higher and higher, something would get spat out that was completely inauthentic, that wasn't him, that was very mean, which we, he was not a mean person at all, and it didn't happen all the time. But I'm just saying by bottling up those emotions and not actually taking the time to take a step back, breathe for a couple seconds and go, okay, like, really? Why is this triggering me? Is it really what this person's saying or is it something else that's bothering me? And then the next stage is really kind of going to the point of saying, all right, now, what feeling am I getting from this arc of intensity right now? Like, am I disconnected? Am I in a place where I'm not feeling confident or am I not empathetic? Or whatever it is, like, I got to figure out which feeling it is that I'm feeling and then which core value is attached to that feeling. So that's what I literally do when I'm trying to rein those emotions back in. So again, if, like I said, if I'm not feeling like I'm, you know, in a place of, I guess you could say, confidence in my life, then probably for myself, because integrity is attached to confidence for me as one of my values, 
I have to look and see is there something that I am not being integral of? I'm not in a state of integrity in some place in my life, and where is that so that I can try to align that and get it back right? So it's just all about being aware of that stuff before it hits the top of the arc to be able to rein it back in, to be able to make it just kind of dissolve and, and be able to deal with things on a far more rational way instead of being irrational based off of your emotions, if that makes sense. So that's just the start and it just progresses on and on from there. It's just like a, it all kind of my entire course actually works off of this same process of addressing those values, addressing those feelings and understanding what the arc of intensity is hitting and then also creating what I call an inner purpose feeling that is actually representative of all your core values. So if I align all my core values, which is truth, integrity, unity, protection, relationships, creativity, leadership, detachment, if all of those are aligned, the one word that I use for my inner purpose feeling is harmony. I'm harmonious. Now, I'm never going to be perfect with that, but I'll always try my best to at least get my vibe up in each of those core values as much as I can to live the best version of myself that I can. And that's what I want to train other people to do is live the best version of their selves based off that structure. That's it. <laughs> indeed, indeed. And they can do that by going to CoreyLaneHilton.com or for those that are thinking of a freakier version of Corey, <laughs> TakeItOff.ca. CA is a Canada extension. TakeItOff.ca or CoreyLaneHilton.com. He's yeah, told man, us that he's given these this listening audience a promo code to get his book because you know our dollar is not as strong in Canada as <laughs> or any other country right now. <laughs> yeah, if you go to his website. It's what thirty five ninety five Canada, uh, thirty four ninety five here in Canada, and then um, unfortunately for me to be able to ship to the U.S., there is about a fifteen dollars shipping charge to get to mm-hmm. the U.S. right now. So for your U.S. clients in particular. That's why I want to give that discount of 20% by putting in more code. So just M-O-R-E-C-O-D-E, you put that in when you go to my checkout on any of the things, whether it be my course plans or for that matter, just purchasing the book. They do work hand in hand with one another. So um, I put it together and I'm just in the process of packaging it. So at this moment, you just can purchase the book on my website right now. But in the next couple of weeks, I'm going to be having the courses up there. I just haven't put the worksheets together. I'm in the process of building the worksheets for it. So but I am certified working with my actual publishing company, training people to do this on, on another scale. I'm just putting it together right now for my own personal website to, to train students, you know, directly through, through myself here. But again, I can offer that 20% discount on one-on-one training or video course training because they both work in conjunction with the book. So it's kind of a fun process to do if you're actually going to address this. It's actually kind of a fun way to do it because you can be entertained by the book. You could read a chapter and be like, holy shit, that's crazy. And then actually go back and go, wow, okay, well, where do I where do I reflect, relate on this in my life? And then that's where I carry it through the worksheet where a person can literally take their own self and strip themselves down and get rid of some of those layers and address them. It's just all about being aware. I'm not trying to sit here and tell you what you need to do. A proper leader in my eyes just gently guides somebody in the right direction. It takes them to go in there when I'm going into the gym and working out. I'm not going to be able to pull the weights up for them. I can gently guide them in the right direction and they can go and do the training. And that's, it's up to them, like anything, right? But at the same time, I just gently guide with an element of inspiration element of education and an element of entertainment and i throw it all together in that take it off brand make it a something that's a serious subject a little more fun and a little more relatable and a little more vulnerable so yeah that's about it 
And that, sir, is a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful declaration. Thank you for sharing your your time and your the life with us, thinking of telling us about this book, which I'm going to um, now that I got a promo code, (laughs) I'm going to purchase myself a copy. And unfortunately, I do live in the U.S., so $15 shipping. But But here's the good news, man. Here's the great news. I will personally sign it to you, my friend, with with mad appreciation and gratitude for having you on, on, having me on your podcast to start with. And again, when you take the time to read the book and you hear some of the stories, you might want to rebook me back on to have a conversation about some of those stories because we own the right, right, right. Because one of the clubs you visited, or you you spent some time at, is some of the clubs that I found myself spending time at. You know yeah. it. Got into a little trouble myself. <laughs> <laughs> I know that place. What? I know it. And it was great. It was so much yeah. fun. You know, it's a foregone industry, Philippe, but I'll tell you what, man. I'm glad I experienced it. And as yeah. politically incorrect as it was, and there was a lot of politically incorrect stuff out there. Yeah. Man, it's like, you know, I'm glad that I was able to have a, fun, a lot of fun. I didn't hurt anyone in the process. I really didn't. But, like, man, I'm glad that it was a, I was at a, of an era where people weren't so bloody critical of one another and we could just have a lot of fun and, and, and not really care about a lot of the things that we now are so tribal about you know and, and at that time I just I was rubbing shoulders with, with all genders all ethnicities all sexualities and nobody judged anybody about anything it was just like we're people let's just have a good time and I, I, I'll even say this is just kind of a cap off is on that subject is, is I was always very open to I, I never I've never wanted to be a mediocre person in more than one way and that meant that I wanted to put myself in uncomfortable situations where a lot of even white folks may not choose to go to because it's maybe in their own perceptions too bloody dangerous but by doing that I was able to actually experience some of the most amazing experiences of my life that I'll never forget and I, I'll, I'll never forget this is one that I, I know you can feel a little bit because you're down that area to a certain degree in the south area but my ex-wife and I, we, we got the pleasure of being able to go to Atlanta at one point, many, many moons ago, and see Prince play at the Fox Theater, the place that he played his last show at. And me and her were the only white folks in the entire place, and she was a four-foot-ten blonde. <laughs> and, and Matt, we had the best time. Like, we were out there and just jamming with everybody. It was halftime at the, 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 the intermission of the show. We're out there singing Prince songs with everybody, arm in arm, just giving her and just having an absolute blast. There was nothing about skin color. There was nothing about what we were wearing. It didn't matter about anything, man. We were just all having a damn good time. And, and I just kind of like, I, I feel for some people in my own way, I kind of feel for them when they're not willing to go out there and experience that, the cultural differences that we have in this world. And because two years ago I was in the Philippines and I saw a culture of people where they were literally living under a little shelter and they had chicken skewers that they were cooking and selling bottles of gasoline on the side of the road and they didn't even own the shelter, it was on somebody else's property, right? And they had toothless smiles from ear to ear and their kids were running around in the back having fun in the field behind them and then ironically I would turn around and take my drive my scooter into town where I could hit a Wi-Fi connection and jump onto Facebook for some stupid reason, why, whatever, why ever I, why I did that, I don't know. But I saw literally, this is right before COVID, I saw like all these people back here at home in Canada all hoarding toilet paper. And the irony of that in that moment was just unbelievable. I just sat there and I was like, do I even want to go home? Like, because uh, I was seeing people that had absolutely nothing as far as materialistic stuff. They didn't have all the 
keeping up with the Joneses bullshit, but they were so much more happy than anybody that I saw back here at home, even in Canada. So who's really, you know, what's it all about, right? Like, you know, is it all about who has the most toys? I don't know, man. Not, not to me anymore. I'm kind of at the mindset where it's like, whatever it is to make my dream happen, it's not about the toys. It's about making the impact, you know, and that's gratifying. That's makes me feel like a better person. I'll go to my grave. I'm gonna. I swear to God, that's one thing I, I really want to do. I, this is something I took straight from the mouth of Trent Shelton, and I love this this analogy. And he's always saying, "Don't focus so much on your bloody birthday. Birthday isn't that important. What's important is your death day. And it's more like, you know, are you gonna run your tank of gas out, or are you gonna be one of these people that's actually still walking around this planet that's been dead for the last 20 years? I don't want to be that guy. I don't want to be that guy that runs his tank right out and. I can, when I leave this world at some point, I know I've actually done something. I've left a legacy. And that might just be this book that I've wrote, but it might be a whole lot more than that based on this dream that I've got right now. I just want to get the word out to the right audience. I'm not here to solve the whole world problems. I just want to get out there and talk to people that want to want to work on themselves a little bit. If I can help them, that's just awesome. So. Indeed, indeed, indeed. Well, thank you, Corey Lane Hilton for coming on the More Than Therapy podcast today. And for those of you that listen or will listen to it in the near future, remember, you can go to CoreyLaneHilton.com to check out his story, check out his book, check out his services, look at his very eclectic photo gallery. I'll see you, Corey. <laughs> <laughs> it's not that bad, man. But no, 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 no. Very can tasteful. I, very tasteful. I, I know it could have been a lot worse, especially from your Canada days. <laughs> can I leave your audience with one thing? This is yes, one please, please, little, please, please. This is just one little line that I put in the very last book, the last chapter of my book called The Final Revelation. I was literally talking to my 30-year-old son. And if I could talk to your audience as far as the guys out there to say one one-liner that I think could help guys that really struggle, especially for people like, oh, look at the statistics here in Canada right now. Three or four suicides right now are men. It's happened for a reason. And I got to say to the guys out there, because I did this for a long time, I struggled with this, this bottled up emotion bullshit, trying to be mad enough the right way. Just let the damn break before you damn break. It's okay to cry. You know, let the emotions out. Whether you got to go into another room to do it, get it out, because it's going to make you, no matter what, you're going to you're gonna come out the other side a lot better person. It's just, and I think back even deep, deep, deep into when I was a little kid, you know, the little kid having a spoiled, rotten break where I was crying my eyes out for no reason, but I can can still remember the relief I had when I'd been crying for like a half an hour straight as a little kid, and the relief I had when I stopped. I can still feel that relief, and I think that goes into adulthood too. I think that we just bottle it so much that it strays from our authenticity because we're not allowed to actually be that, and I think that guys should you know we don't we don't have to we don't have to portray that role i think that, that it's something that i don't know i just think that it's something it's, it's it's systematically built into us being the, right. the strong man right you know? and i don't know connection with your partners being it's a lesson oh. i wish i would have learned earlier much earlier in life and that i try to instill in my my children my sons and my client base who haven't quite came to that level of actualization yet so be thankful that you've made it to that point in your life many of us die without ever getting there thank you for saying it man i'm telling you it's one thing that if 
but I, I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't change anything in my life. But if I could turn back the hands of time a little bit, I wish I had figured that out earlier. Like I would have had a lot more. I don't know. I just think I would have. It would have. I would have had a more wholesome life. Would have more of a. I don't know. I just I wouldn't have had as many dips and valleys. But they were meant. They were there for a reason. They were there for a reason. What What was made you what you are? That clay got molded as crazy as it was. There we go. There we go. But thank you once again, Corey, on coming on the Modern Therapy Podcast. For those of you who haven't subscribed, please subscribe at however you choose to push play to listen to a podcast. Please go to CoreyLaneHilton.com to learn more about Corey and about his amazing journey by purchasing his book and reading the blurbs and the excellent reviews he has on his site. Look at his beautiful, illustrious career and his photo gallery. And if you're interested in authenticity coaching, please connect with um, Corey because it seems like that that's the formula to being your authentic self. And the key to being authentic will give you a world of more better experiences in this world because you're being your authentic self and experiencing the world through an uncovered eye, an open eye for experiences for love, as Corey indicated, that he wished he could have done it earlier regarding his marriage. I, I ain't gonna lie, I wish the same. And to work on being your authentic self, for authenticity is the best way to be true to yourself and true to your life. Be well, be great.